we have the fear that we're not going to make it. Uh, we're a bundle of hopes and fears. And uh, if you remember the last line of O Little Town of Bethlehem, it says the hopes and fears of all the years, all the longings, all the myths, all the literature of, of the human race. All of these hopes and fears are met in thee tonight. That is, in the man-child in Jesus. Well, let's go back to the story and read it again. Luke 2, if you will. It's an old story, the oldest story ever told. It's a great story. I never get tired of hearing it. Uh, last Friday, our staff gathered for our traditional year-end Christmas party. And, and uh, at the end of the evening, we were sitting around talking about our Christmas traditions. And I took out uh, my New Testament and read again uh, uh, the uh, Christmas story. And it, it always brings back so many memories. I always get nostalgic when I, when I read it because I remember as a child... Our family would gather, the children would sit on the floor, this would be Christmas Eve. And our family, we always celebrated on Christmas Eve because I never could go to sleep on Christmas Eve if we didn't, and I would just be cranky all day Christmas, so uh, my parents started having Christmas on Christmas Eve. Well, I, I thought everybody did until I got married and discovered that Carolyn's family always had Christmas on Christmas morning, so being the good, adaptable husband that I am. I, I, we moved our Christmas to Christmas morning, and I haven't slept on Christmas Eve for 30 years. <clears throat> that is worth it. But I, I can remember sitting uh, uh, on the floor with our pajamas and robes and slippers on, and, and my father would read this uh, Christmas story in the King James, and I, I heard it so many times I memorized it, and I still think when I, when I was thinking back over the story this last week, the King James uh, terminology, language, kept coming back to me. It's just embedded deeply in my mind. But uh, here's the story. Uh, Luke chapter 2, if you'd like to follow along. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town. To register. I, I uh, just want to remind you again that this really happened. Uh, Christmas really happened. It's not a myth. We know who Augustus Caesar was, well known in Roman history. Octavius, he later took this name, Romans, uh, of uh, Caesar the August one. Uh, we know when he ruled, we know what kind of man he was. Uh, if you're familiar with the story of uh, Cleopatra and Charlton Heston, uh, he, you know how he, he gets into that story. I mean, he's real. He really lived. Real historical figure. Quirinius was a real governor. Uh, his full name was, was Publius Sulpicius Quirinius, which explains why Luke calls him Quirinius. He really lived. He was twice the governor of, of uh, this province. Real historical figure. Shows up in Roman uh, literature, the histories, the annals of, of this of this time. And this was a real census. It actually occurred. Sir Robert Ramsey, doing some uh, excavations in Ankara, Turkey, uncovered a document that indicated when this the census took place. Uh, actually, Caesar had called for it four years before it was enacted. But the Jews fought it in the courts for four years so that these uh, censuses were taken every 14 years for purposes of taxation. 
And the Jews were so angered by it that they fought it in the courts for four years and delayed its enactment. And then it happened at the precise moment when Mary was about to give birth to Jesus, one of those uh, accidents of, of history that indicate that God is behind the scenes shaping all these events, making it possible for the Lord to be in Bethlehem, for Mary to be in Bethlehem on the, at the essential moment, the precise moment when she gave, gave birth to the, to the Lord. So all these people are real. That's, that's the point I want to make. This, this really happened. Real, real emperor, real governor, real census, a real Mary and, and Joseph. Uh, we're told in verse 4, because the census was binding on everyone, that Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in strips of cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I just want to remind you again that Mary and Joseph were real. They were probably much younger than we envisioned them to be. Mary must have been 13, 14 years of age. Couples married quite young back then. Joseph was a late teenager. Uh, high school age, perhaps, or in his early 20s. Uh, Joseph had just gone through this uh, terrible experience of discovering that, that his fiancée was, was uh, pregnant out of wedlock. Uh, he had fallen in love with this uh, young lady from Galilee and was anticipating being married to her. And, and uh, she left town suddenly, was gone for three months. No one knew quite where she was. Uh, she came back three months later, having been in the, in the hill country of Judea, down near Jerusalem, the big city. And she comes back to, to tell Joseph, I'm, I'm pregnant. And uh, she says, but you don't need to worry that the Father is the Holy Spirit. And Joseph said, you bet. <laughs> See, the angel hadn't, hadn't appeared yet to Joseph. What a shock. You know, what a shock to his system. What had happened is that the angel appeared to Mary, and Mary went down to talk to Elizabeth, a family member, and Elizabeth understood. She'd had a revelation as well, but Joseph didn't understand. It wasn't until later that the angel appeared to him. What a, what a shock to that young man's system. And what a, what a, a shame to our Lord. Uh, it must have been... Uh, in a little town, everybody knows what's going on. And Nazareth was a little place. And uh, here was this young lady uh, who was engaged, and suddenly it becomes obvious that she's pregnant. She's still not married. And the rumors start to circulate. And no explanation would be an explanation that anyone would accept. And uh, as a matter of fact, our Lord carried that stigma with him to the end of his days. There's one incident where he was in debate with the Pharisees, and, and he was... They were being bested, and as often is the case when you're arguing with someone and, and, and your argument is weak, you attack the person. And, and they said to him, well, they said, at least we're not born of fornication. The implication being, you are. See, they never understood. They never understood. And even Joseph had a difficult time understanding, but he, he had accepted the word of the, of the angel. And 
And, and though he didn't marry her, hadn't married her yet, he, he'd taken her in and was taking care of her. The census came through and uh, they had to go down to Bethlehem because Joseph was, a, was of the line of David. He was one of David's descendants. A thousand years before, God had appeared to, to David. Uh, David had made a request. He wanted to build a house for God. And God appeared to David and said, David, I don't want you to build a house for me. I'm not interested in what you do, uh, what you do for me. I want to do something for you. I want to build a house for you. He was thinking of, of David's line, his dynasty that would culminate in the, in the Savior who was to come. God said, David, one, one of these days, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne of Israel forever. It's a reference to the Savior. Joseph was in that line, see, leading up to the, to the coming one. And he, he had to get to Bethlehem because 700 years before, Micah, the prophet, who was Isaiah's contemporary and Hosea's, uh, uh, Isaiah and Hosea's contemporary, had predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Well, here they were in Nazareth and through one of these quirks of history. Uh, uh, the census was delayed, and then at the right time, at the precise moment, the most pr- propitious time, Joseph and, and Mary go down to, to Bethlehem, and another descendant of David is about to be born. Joseph was a carpenter, and all carpenters have pickups, so uh, I assume that Joseph went out to the garage and looked at the ball tires on his pickup and, and uh, wondered if he was going to be able to make it all the way down to Bethlehem and loaded up all their junk in the back, and away they went. And you know the story. They got down to Bethlehem, and, and uh, Mary had uh, called AAA before they went down. But uh, uh, someone else got her reservation, and, and there was no place to stay. No, no inn would take them in. Uh, there was a, a really funny story in Reader's Digest this last month. Some of you may have seen it. Little boy tried out for the school play, Christmas story. He tried out for the part of Joseph and didn't get it. His best friend got it. And he, he was assigned, uh, rather, the part of the innkeeper, and he was really miffed, so he decided he was going to get his friend on the d- night of the play. So his friend, who was playing Joseph, came with Mary knocking on the door, and the innkeeper opens the door, and Joseph says, Is there any room in the inn? And he says, Sure, there's lots of room. Come on in. <laughs> and the guy, his, his friend walks in, looks around, and says, Hey, Mary, this is a dump. Let's go find some other place to stay. <laughs> So they went to the cave. And <laughs> the truth is, uh, while inns were not particularly nice in those days, they were a whole lot better than where Jesus was born. He was born in a cave. That's where shepherds kept their sheep. That's where uh, they kept their cattle. And I've mentioned before in past uh, Christmas messages the deplorable condition of, of stables in those days. I was raised around, uh, my father raised cutting horses. I've been around horses. You know, we, our barns were always clean. I know, because I usually was the one that mucked them out. And, and you know, they, they smelled good. They were always clean. But they didn't, you know, the, I've also been to stables in the Middle East. I know what they're like. Filthy, malodorous places. More like a public restroom than anything else. That's where our Lord was born. As I say, our creches sanitize it so much, we don't really... Uh, we don't really understand what happened. He came out, of, as the songwriter puts, out of his ivory palaces, not only into a world of woe, but into a filthy, dirty stable. 
And uh, that's, that's where he was born. Christian literature has uh, really rung the changes on, this, on, the, on the incarnation, this fact that the infinite, as G.K. Chesterton puts it, was contracted into a span. That's, you know, that's, the, that's the marvel, that's the mystery of Christian faith. That's the magic of it. That's the central miracle, the fact that God became a man. The fact that the, that the omnipotent became impotent. The, the fact that the infinite one became infinitesimally small. That cave was the center of the universe, as someone has put it. Angels were looking on. Demons were conspiring against God and, and his plan to bring salvation to the world. That was the center of the universe, center stage. And the center was incredibly small, little child that Mary cradled in her arms. He cried just like any other uh, other child. I've never liked that that Christmas carol that says, "No crying he makes." I can't believe that because he felt hunger just as any child felt hunger, and he cried when his little tummy hurt. He cried, and they rocked him, and they changed his diapers, and and the, the that's the marvel of it. That's the mystery of it. That's what we've left out of of Christmas. Uh, Chesterton tells about a, uh, a statue that used to stand in the courthouse of his home in England. It was a Madonna and child. And the population of the town became overwhelmingly Protestant, so they wanted to get rid of the Madonna and child. So they called upon the church fathers to take it away. And it was such a lovely statue, they didn't want to. So they hired a sculptor who chiseled away the Christ child and left the Madonna. And that just enraged the Protestants more because they felt that that would contribute to Mariolatry. But the fathers justified their decision on the basis that you can't chisel away the mother and leave the child suspended in midair. You have to chisel away the child. And I thought when I read that, that's what we've done to Christmas. We've chiseled away the child. We've, you know, Christmas is, ought to be the most controversial event in the year. And it's become the most non-controversial Christian holiday you, you can imagine. What happened on Christmas 2,000 years ago was that God became a man. That little baby was God, the Lord of the universe, cradled in, in Mary's arms. I mentioned in a column a couple of years ago, my uh, our granddaughter, Melanie, she was two at the time, was wandering around our Living room, picking up stuff and looking at it. Carolyn has all these little Christmas things all over the place. And, and she was examining them. And she came over to a, a, a nativity scene that was given to us by uh, someone in Bethlehem. And it's a, a lovely little olive wood uh, nativity scene. And uh, she looked at the figures for a while. And then she reached over and picked up the baby Jesus. It's a tiny little figure about an inch long. She picked it up and held it in her hands, and rocked it, and she said in this real quiet voice, I could just barely hear her, she said, Baby Jesus, sleep. And I was sitting across the room from her, and I've, I've rarely had anything touch me like that. Because what came flooding into my mind over the years was what, what John said. That which we have seen and heard, which we have touched, which our hands have grasped, the word of life, became manifest, you see. Uh, you know, I, I've often thought uh, of Jesus and, and the men that he ran with. They, you know, they, were a, they were just men, just ordinary men. 
And you know what men are like when they're together. They're always shoving and pushing and playing around and arm wrestling and clapping each other on the back and giving each other hugs. And when you stop and think about it, the one that they were shoving, the one that they were pounding on the back, the one that, that they were arm wrestling with was nothing more than the, the Lord of glory, the creator God of the universe, the little one that Mary held in her arms, the one whose diaper Joseph changed was God himself in flesh. That's the central miracle of Christianity. That's the most controversial thing I can imagine. God became flesh and dwelt among us. The apostles say, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and and truth. That's what Christmas means. He's accessible. He's touchable. He's not far away. He isn't distant from us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. It's an indication of how much he loves us. He loved us so much that he came to live with us. In our, going back to Chris's story, in our disease-ridden state, he took upon himself flesh and dwelt among us. Why? So we would know that God wants to be near us. So we would know that he's seeking the likes of us to worship him so he could save us from our sin. That's what Christmas is all about. And the, the, the sad thing about it is that we've chiseled the Christ child out of Christmas. We've just emptied it of, of meaning. Its meaning is that God became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the oldest story ever told. It began in the garden immediately after the fall. When God said to the woman, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Now, uh, the story doesn't end there. It gets better. Verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today... In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. 700 years before, more Isaiah had predicted that uh, a child would be born and he would be the Savior. And this is the sign to which the angel refers. This is the sign. You're going to find a little baby. Wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Carolyn and I wandered around in that field one day a number of years ago when we were in Israel. We just took the time to walk through that field together. It's just a rocky hillside. The tradition is pretty good that that's actually the shepherd's field. And off to the south is the city of Bethlehem. You can look up the hill and you can see the spires of the Church of the Nativity where the traditional site of his actual birth is. It's a cave down underneath, they say, that it was the location. Look off to the south, or to the north, rather. There's a, a, a hill with the top leveled off, which was the site of, of Herod's uh, palace, uh, his summer palace, which he called Herodium after himself with uh, characteristic humility. Uh, uh, Bethlehem is fairly high, about 3,500 feet. It's much cooler than uh, any other location in, in the 
uh, in Israel. He built a summer palace there to take advantage of the winds off the Mediterranean. And I remember at the time, it, you looked up to Bethlehem it's where people were living. It was a small town, uh, about the size of Cuna in those days. But nevertheless, a fairly prominent town. It was right on the tr- north-south trade route. Uh, off to the north was Herod's palace. The shepherds could look up there and see the palace. And just a few miles north was Jerusalem. And I remember at the time, it struck me again that, that, that the angel of the Lord appeared to the angels, or to the shepherds. It didn't appear to Herod. Didn't, didn't appear in Jerusalem to the doctors and lawyers and, and theologians up there. Appeared to a bunch of shepherds. Why shepherds? Well, interestingly enough, shepherds were uh, a sorry lot in those days. Again, we've sanitized the shepherds, made them something that they're not. The, uh, the Talmud says over and over again, you don't want your son to be a shepherd. Because the rastiest sort of people became shepherds. I mean, he's the hard-living, hard-drinking, fast-lane people. They became shepherds. The non-religious people, the secular-minded folks, those that, that seemingly had no interest in God, who never darkened the door of the synagogue, who, could care, who couldn't care less that seen about God. And I can imagine them sitting around the fire that night. It gets cold in that part of, of the Holy Land, passing a bottle around, a can of Coors or something cup of coffee, talking to one another about their lives, swapping a, a, a few ribald jokes because that's the sort of people that, that they were. And suddenly, the angel of the Lord appeared to them. And he said, the Savior you've been seeking is over there. Now, who would imagine that they were out seeking God? Well, because sometimes the most sinful people are the ones who are who have the deepest longing for God because they've tried everything they've run the string out and they realize that there isn't any satisfaction out there they've they've pretty well given up and very often these are the people that are closest to the kingdom Jesus said that he said to the to the church going religious folk of his day prostitutes and and tax collectors are closer to kingdom than you are because at least they know they're sinful. There's something very good about knowing you're very sinful. As a matter of fact, being sinful and knowing it is sometimes the highest good of all because it leads you to recognize your need and to do something about it. See, the whole point of Christmas is that God is out looking for sinners like you and me, the likes of us, the likes of the shepherds. The kind of people that he's looking for, because really at heart, those are the kind of people that are looking for him. They're, that yearning inside for something more or someone more is, is nothing more or less than a yearning, a longing for God. And the Lord comes seeking them. He takes the initiative. That's why he hunted up Rahab, of all people. Who would have thought that Rahab, the town harlot in Jericho, would have a, a, a heart for God? But God saw to it that the spies got to the right place at the right time to tell her about, about the Savior. Jesus made the point that Elijah could have gone to a lot of people, but he went to the widow of Zarephath down in Phoenicia. The Phoenicians were the grossest, most immoral people on the face of the earth. And yet when Elijah sought out someone with a heart for God, he went to Phoenicia and he found a widow there and ministered to her. And she opened her heart to the Savior. 
That's why Jesus said, when I came, I didn't come to minister to well folks. I, I came looking for the sick. That's what Christmas is all about. He came to these, these men who ostensibly had no interest in God, and yet he realized that the searchings and the longings and the hankerings in their heart were really hankerings after God. And he said to them, the, the angel announced to them, Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, you shepherds. Who is, who is Christ the Lord. He's the Messiah. And this is the sign. You'll find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly the, the angels were accompanied by a great host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace or tranquility to men on whom His favor rests. That's the key. God's favor rests on on people that are looking for God, people who, who have a heart for God, people who are willing to believe what they're told about God. Hebrews says that it's faith that pleases God. That's all. It's not being, being a churchgoer. It's not being involved in committees and activities. As good as those things may be, what God is looking for is a man or a woman who has faith and that pleases God. And when we put our trust in the one who came, then we have peace, peace on earth. Glory to God in heaven, peace on earth. Oh, not cessation of hostility. There will always be that on, on the earth. There will always be war. There will always be there'll be divorces. There will be separations. There will be heartache. There will be, be heartbreak. These things will go on and on and on until the Lord comes back to set the world right. But in the meantime, there can be tranquility in our hearts. There can be peace there. Peace, those on whom God's favor rests, have peace. And God's favor rests on those who, who believe. This, this strange story that God became a man and dwelt among us in order to save us from our sin. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to, to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said uh, to them. I go back to that, uh, that Christmas carol again. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in, in thee tonight. All of our aspirations, all of our longings, all of our dread, all of our fear. Fear that we're not going to make it. The fear that we're not going to be a real man or a real woman. The fear that, that we're not going to be satisfied or fulfilled. They're met in Christ and no one else. Absolutely no one else. Some of you may have seen uh, uh, 60 Minutes last uh, Sunday. Uh, there was a very, very interesting interview uh, of uh, Woody Allen. Morley Safer interviewed him and asked some very penetrating questions. Uh, Alan has two fears, which he readily admits, two obsessions, sex and death. He can't understand sex, and you know, that's a predominant theme in a lot of his, 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 his uh, movies. Plays on that idea, tries to answer a lot of the basic questions about our sexuality, who we are, what, is it, what it means to be a man or to be a woman. The other fear is death, which he readily admits he is scared out of his wits that he's going to die. 
And uh, it's very interesting. Right at the end of the interview, uh, Morley Safer asked him, Woody, he said, do you want to live on forever in the minds of your admirers? And Alan said, no, I want to live on forever in my apartment. And I, you know, I laughed when I heard it because it's one of those typical Woody Allen throwaway lines. But beneath it, you see all the pathos and the hurt and the pain. Here's a man who is, who's fearful, fearful, but he's not going to make it. And some of you are feeling that way. I want you to understand that that fear is going to be assuaged and relieved by, by what happened that, that Christmas night. And your hope that someday you're going to be everything that you've longed to be, that, that, that's going to be realized when you come to the one who was born that, that night. I want you to understand that, that all of the longings, the yearnings, the hankerings, the hungers in your heart have been planted there by God. That is God calling out to you. As the psalmist puts it, that's his deep calling out to your deep. That's the, 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 the profound heart of God calling out to the deepest part of, of your being. Saying, come closer, come closer. I've come as close as I can. I became a man. I lived among you. Now you come closer to me. Uh, George MacDonald describes that hunger this way. He calls it an infinite unrest, a hunger not at first after known good, but something vague we know not and yet would, the conscience tossing on my breast and something deeper that will not be expressed. It's that something deeper that we can't express that is, is God calling out, calling out to us. And those longings, those hungers can only be met by the God who came. He came and lived among us. He made himself available to us. He's touchable. He's reachable. He's not too far away. He's right here. He just wants us to invite him into our lives, to be our Lord, to be Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. There's no greater Christmas gift that you could give than to give your heart back to God. To offer up your life as a living sacrifice to Him. Would you do that this morning? Will you thank Him for coming? Will you ask Him to come into your own life if you've never done that before and be your Lord and your Savior this, this season and for the rest of your life? Lord, we thank you for this wonderful time of year, for the memories and for the, the feelings that, that this period of time invokes in us. And we honestly have to say that Christmas as we know it is often so disappointing because it's not what it was meant to be. Help us, Lord, to center upon you, the one who came. Help us to realize that uh, this is... That the meaning of all of this is simply that you love us very much and more than anything else you're, you're searching us out, seeking us to worship you, running us down, hounding us, hectoring us, calling to us, rendering us at times impotent, fearful, so we will, we will stop our mindless 
endless, unsatisfying search and rather come back to you and, and put ourselves in your care. Thank you so much for coming. We ask you to come into our hearts. Fulfill our longings. Relieve our fears. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.